Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me as usual is Cameron. Hey, I'm playing baseball! Oh, oh, really? Uh, uh, tell me the names of, I don't know, the however many people on our baseball team. Let's see, 15? Let's say 15. The 15 I other would, boys. but I've been drinking this liquid. Uh-oh, no, oh, It's supposed shift. to make me the best baseball player, but... I'm not feeling so well anymore. Uh, I'm forgetting all the plays. Oh, okay. This is where we're going. Okay. Wait, all right. Wait, wait, where's second base? Uh huh. I thought I was a genius. <laughs> baseball genius, huh? I thought I was the best baseball player to ever live. Turns out. Who's the shortstop? Turns out you were just. A nightmare in a dreamscape. And scene. Wow. <laughs> we did it. We did it. I was really, I was struggling there. I, I, I didn't, I, uh, we had, we'd run through all of my baseball terms. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't, it was a, it was a, a, my, well, we'll get to like what I thought had happened or like the, the, the worst place uh-huh. my mind went. Uh, in terms of like drinking special liquids in this uh, collection. Oh, don't. Uh, <laughs> I was like, you what know, are you what doing, wonder- Cameron? What a, what a wonderfully written story. Oh, uh, yeah. A little preview for y'all. What a wonderfully written story that's that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> what an extremely well written story that is not good. Uh huh. Wow. <laughs> Um, <laughs> we're talking about 1993's uh, short story collection, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Uh, and yeah. uh, uh, I don't know. There's not a lot of, uh, I guess, a uh, uh, track to lay here at the beginning because I don't have a lot to say. Uh, it took me. This is probably since I can't remember the last time I had a really hard time reading a book. Um, let's see. The second grade. Uh huh. Yeah. They gave you uh, that Stephen Hawking book. Yeah. Yeah. And you just couldn't get through it. I couldn't. I couldn't. Mr. Kosisko was like, Michael, you're very clever. You love Star Wars here. Understand a brief history of time. God, you're from the Midwest. What? Mr. Kosisko? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. If you're listening, Mr. Kosisko, hello. You really supported me. You got me a signed Garfield book from none other than Jim Davis himself. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was really neat. It was very kind of him. Damn, Mr. Kosisko coming out. Uh-huh. Yeah, let's hear it from Mr. Kosisko. Yeah, everyone, uh, uh, you know, uh, salutes in the chat for Mr. Kosisko. Uh-huh. <laughs> Great. Very good. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, anyway, I finished this book yesterday, which is very not normally the order of things for me in in regard to this show. Usually I finish maybe about a week in advance, but mm-hmm. uh this this short story collection was tough going for me. It's tough going, I hope for everyone. 
um, <laughs> because I don't think it's very good. We got we got to come out of the gate. Okay. We can't we can't uh, dance around it. I think this short story collection mm-hmm. has some of Stephen King's best short story writing in it. Mm-hmm. I think the collection on the whole is bad. Yeah, because that's not most of the stories. Yeah, uh, it's a real. Uh, I, I it helps inform some like late eighties, early seven or early nineties, not early seventies, early nineties. Steve, for me, yeah. There's a lot of the stuff we've been talking about from the past four or five books. The post it era is mm-hmm. really well represented here in terms of like what Stephen King's about, the kinds of things he's interested in talking about, the kinds of stories he tells, right? The the genre form that that's very different. This is basically almost split in half in terms of creep show style horror mm-hmm. and then extremely boring. <laughs> Uh, like crime stories. Yeah, <laughs> like it's almost perfectly in half. It is. It is those two things. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it's instructive in mm-hmm. a way. I I think at the end, by the time we like tell you our things, I think there's probably a really good like what are they called like machete cut. Yeah. Is that machete order? There's probably like a really good short story collection mm-hmm. in here, and maybe mm-hmm. we can help you get there, uh, dear listener. Yeah. But uh, I would not suggest just coming out the gate and reading this one back to front in the way that I would unquestionably say that about the other two short story collections we've read. Yeah. Like, like just give them a shot. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it was interesting because I think last month you said that you really liked the short story collection. I'm like, and I remember thinking. I thought I did. Yeah. I remember thinking when you said that, I was like, I don't know. I remember there being a lot of turkeys in this one. Well, the, I think the reason is that I remembered, this is the Stephen King, look, I, I <laughs> like you, listener, am, am a victim of memory and time. Uh, you know, it will one day destroy me. And it's been a long time, it's probably been, it might have been, it's nearly 20 years since I read this back to front. Mm-hmm. Like, unquestionable. I've read some of these stories since then, but nearly 20 years, probably mm-hmm. like 17, 18 years. And uh, I just remembered all the good ones. <laughs> right. Well, I, I just They were the best. Right. That, that is what you said was, in fact, true. Right. Even though I remembered this one being a bit more of a, of a uh, you know, nothing burger uh, than, wow. than you did. The uh, older millennial uh-huh. using the, the term of art for our generation. Yes, of course. Uh, even though that is the case, right? Even though I remembered that at the same time, I remembered way back in, in the prehistory of, um, the world when you first pitched the idea of us doing like a limited run Stephen King podcast as like a Halloween special, like in 2018 mm. or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the idea there is that we would just read like a selection of short stories. And I came up with my short list for what I wanted to talk about. And like two of those stories immediately were stories from this collection, right? Because like you, they're like, I think that there are some of the like most iconic King short stories, like some of the best he's ever done are in this thing. Unfortunately, there's a lot of other stuff too. Can I give you some numbers? Uh, yes, these numbers are bewildering yeah. to me. Please, please share them with uh, the world. So this is part of what I think actually makes this collection um, uh, such a tricky thing. Uh, just to, to lay this out for you, the first short story collection was Night Shift, right? That mm-hmm. was in total in its initial print run, 336 pages with 20 stories. That means that each story in that collection was an average of 16.8 pages long. All right. Seven years later, 
Skeleton Crew comes out. That was in total 512 pages with 22 stories, meaning that the average short story length was 23.28 pages. Okay, Mm -hmm. we beefed up. And, you know, you can go back and listen to those episodes and you can kind of see how this plays out, right? Night Shift was a lot of, like, uh, short, creep show like Tales from the Crypty kind of, uh, uh, you know, little ghoulish stories that have an idea, they establish the idea, they pivot to the end, and then it's like, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, Skeleton Crew saw a lot of uh, uh, sort of like psychological depth and sort of like literary ambition seeping in. This is when we get something like Mrs. Todd Shortcut or, you know, like the Ballad of the Flexible Bullet. Uh, uh, stories where King has a little bit more room and he's allowed to kind of uh, think about questions of uh, mode, genre, craft, but also very much a character uh, in a way that Night Shift was not really about. So then we come to Nightmares and Dreamscapes. It, in its initial print run, is 816 pages long with 24 stories, meaning that the length of the average story has now become 34 pages. And if I had like one big blanket thing to say about uh, almost every story in here, right, or or at least an observation to make stylistically, uh, it is that... These stories are becoming too long, <laughs> like just in gen- like almost even the things that I think are really good uh, for the most part have parts of them where I'm like, this could be edited down a little bit. Uh, there, there's a a, right. a sort of like um, loose expansiveness that's like seeping into the King's style here. Uh, and I think, you know, we've talked before about how King becomes so successful that he's essentially uneditab- uneditable. And that might be some of it. Um, But I also think it's uh, worth pointing out where a lot of these stories fall in terms of when they were composed, uh, which is the late 80s and the very early 90s. So because it's published in 93, and I think the most recent stories that are published in it um, come from 90 or 91. There may be a 92 in there as well. Uh, But these are the years of uh, like the climax of addiction, uh, the struggle towards sobriety, and uh, sort of the aftermath of that. Uh, and King, in his the, uh, in the back of the book, he has a little section of notes where he talks about some of the stories and like where the ideas came from and so on. And notably, in many of those notes, it kind of comes up like something really bad was happening to me, he says, more or less, right? Like I was at a dark yeah. time in my life and I was writing this and then it turned out this way and so on. So um, I think there's an impact that that's having on these as well. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. He also alludes to like something really terrible that went happened in the early eighties, and it, I mean, maybe it's I don't know. Is the the, the king, It is fascinating for a, a man so prominent and popular that the official timeline is so confusing. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of like his actual personal life. Um, I don't. Yeah, I really. I I don't know. I mean. We, it seems to me that somewhere around 84, 85, mm-hmm. Tabitha left. Really? Like, and that's just pure speculation. Mm-hmm. But the way that he talks about it here, the fact that we know that he goes and does maximum overdrive mm. and was in North Carolina for half a year, mm-hmm. and all of the stuff in the early, early 80s where we know he went and lived in Pittsburgh. Right. right? Mm-hmm. I think that maybe he and Tabitha were fundamentally split up for a while. 
Mm. Or maybe they were on again, off again, trying to figure things out. You right. know, right? Like, it, li- li- listen, dear listener, pure speculation. This is just me trying to put the timeline together. But he says so clearly here at the end, you know, uh, in the notes section for for this the short stories here, he says, "Look, my life like blew up in the early '80s, and that's the only thing I can think of that coincides with his co- the onset of cocaine." And that coincides with his foray into the film industry of mm-hmm. being active in the film industry, mm-hmm. which would mean not being home right. all that much. Right. Uh, mm. I don't know. It's it's very uh, and, and this is, the, I guess, the issue, too, of so many of the biography biographers being so close to him interpersonally mm-hmm. is that I just don't know if like Bev Vincent's going to get me there. Right. You know. Right. Well, it's I guess it's notable, right, that um, one of the themes that comes up a lot in these stories in particular, uh, is the situation wherein a person with a uh, stable and nominally successful career has something go horribly wrong in an unexpected way, and it, like, derails their life. That was another, that was a thing that I was noticing, is that this kept cropping up in a lot of these stories. Yeah, much like the stuff that, this is why I was saying it provides a really nice bridge into the early 90s, uh, is that so many of these are psychological in nature. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they have real phenomena occur, but unlike, say, a bunch of the stories in Night Shift where, like, they are plot-driven, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, all right, my hand is turning into an alien. <laughs> I've got to figure that shit out, right? And it's about this person kind of spiraling, but also, like, doing a bunch of shit in the middle. Uh, here, it's like, uh-oh, I've discovered something horrible, or I'm being assailed by a big finger. <laughs> I'm going to spiral out about this bad boy. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and it makes a lot of the stories, I think you're right, it gives them a little bit of bloat, but it also just makes them kind of boring to read. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the ones that don't have that, like I said, I think are really good. So maybe maybe we go ahead and start talking about them. I Do you know which note it is in? I'm looking for it. I thought I marked the page, and I, I guess I didn't. Did, did you... Uh, the one where he's like, yeah, people say this is a story where I'm going back to the well, but like, can't people go back to the well every now and again? Do you know which oh, story gosh. that was? Um, it is either, it is, I, I think it's, uh, you know, they got a hell of a band. Oh, no, I got it. I got it. I got it. It's in Omni's Last Case. Oh, okay. It's a, but it's about the other story. Okay. Um, uh, do, 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 do. This is him talking about Omni's Last Case in the notes. This is, like, there are two things in the notes here that I think are worth talking about at the beginning of the episode before we talk about the actual stories. But this is a note that's just kind of about him. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he says, um, He's talking about Omni's Last Case, which is a pastiche story. We'll talk about it in more detail in a bit. But it was also a style in which it was lethally easy to copy, as half a hundred novelists have discovered in the last 20 or 30 years. For a long time, I steered clear of that Chandlerian voice because I had nothing to use it for, nothing to say in the tones of Philip Marlowe that was mine. Then one day I did. Write what you know, the wise old dudes tell us poor commentary cometary remnants of Stern and Dickens and Defoe and Melville, and for me that means teaching, writing, and playing the guitar, although not necessarily in that order. Mm-hmm. As far as my own career within a career of writing about writing goes, I'm reminded of the last line I heard Chet, Chet Atkins, ooh, if that was hard, toss off on Austin City Limits one night. He looked up at the audience after a minute or two of fruitless guitar tuning and said, it took me about 25 years to find out I wasn't very good at this part of it, and by then I was too rich to quit. That's funny. But same thing happened to me. I seem destined to keep going back to the peculiar little town, whether you call it rock and roll heaven, Oregon, Gatlin, Nebraska, or Willow, Maine. And I also seem destined to keep going back to what I do. 
The question which haunts and nags and won't haunts and nags and won't and won't ever completely let go is who am I when I write? Who are you for that matter? Exactly what is happening here and why does it matter? Mm-hmm. There's something going on here. I, I to me like that's a pretty clear statement about like what's going on in a lot of these stories, mm-hmm. right? There a lot of them are kind of weird little reruns. Um, the uh, and. He also talks about that in terms of, you know, they got a hell of, of a band, mm-hmm. right? Um, let me read this little part of a paragraph. There will be readers who think I've visited the peculiar little town once or twice too often, and some may note similarities between these two pieces and an earlier story of mine, Children of the Corn. There are similarities, but does that mean band and season are lapses into self-imitation? It's a delicate question, one each reader must answer for him or herself. But my answer is no. Of course it is. What else am I going to say? Reader, I must uh, confess to you that I believe that it is it is in fact self imitation. Mm-hmm. But but I think that's most of these stories. Most of these stories are where um, the other short story collections have had germs that then we saw grow into novels. I don't really see that here. Yeah, most of these are reruns to me. Yeah, or pieces of reruns. They're not even full full goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's uh, 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 something. I mean, th- Treading water is maybe a, 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 you know, unfortunately negative way to put it, but it does feel like uh, in this run of the late 80s, early 90s, like there's there's a return to these things that he's written, I think, to like try to get a grip on them in sobriety or something. That's, yeah, that's sort I of, think so. Yeah. Right. It, it's about like it, it, it's the the sensation of like watching the author like feel out his territory in a way that he hasn't felt it out before. Yeah, what what allowed me to get a handle on these before? Mm-hmm. And I, like we know, at least in the eighties and through the seventies, it was drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, allowed him to get the grip on it and kind of keep the train running. And yeah, I think you're right. You know, I wouldn't call it treading water. I would call it he, he's taking another run at it. You know, um, there's a reason. We'll talk about it. This this book has a very weird final thing, which is a long essay about children's baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a glory to going around the bases again. There's a glory in repetition mm-hmm. in that essay. Right. And I, if I, th- if there is a word that, that expresses Stephen King's nineties so far to me, it is repetition. Mm-hmm. Re- repetition in some ways without difference. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's the last thing I want to say that from the notes and then we can get right into the episode proper. Actually, I have one other thing, but continue. Oh, please go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, uh, we should probably just mention also that there's an introduction to this where there, not a whole lot happens other than, you know, it's it's his normal introduction kind of thing where he's like, uh, let's n- n- embark upon this journey of fantasy, dear reader. Uh, but he also talks about uh, kind of like what is the place of imaginative or like speculative fiction specifically within within your life or whatever. And there's like a, a an astonishing little biographical detail that comes out. Uh, which is a thing that Tabitha owns him for constantly, apparently. Uh, he, When he was younger, uh, Stephen King believed anything anyone told him, to the extent yes. that the first person he voted for for president, as Tabitha <laughs> loves to tell people, was Richard Nixon. Because Nixon said he had a plan to get us out of Vietnam, and Steve believed it. Yes, again, right? Print the legend. Right. Um, We know that Steve wasn't like that. (laughs) Like, he was so bullheaded libertarian, right? I've read the the guy's political column. Yeah. (laughs) 
right? Like, I maybe that was true. I don't know. Was the voting age 13 back then? Like, Oh, I, I did the math. He would have been 21 that election. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. And I've read his stuff from when he was in college, right? It's mm-hmm. in that Michael Collins book. Um, I, that doesn't check out to me, just to be totally frank, right? Like, this seems to be, like, yet more, it's fun to print the legend. Maybe, mm-hmm. it, maybe Steve did, I mean... I believe that Steve voted for Nixon Mm -hmm. and I believe that he voted for him uh, because he had a plan to get people out of Vietnam, which did seem to be Stephen King's primary concern. Yeah. Um, You know, like reading those essays and kind of knowing what we know about Steve from that time. Sure, I guess. Right. But I, you know, again, printing the legend, we have also read Steve from the 60s and 70s, uh, late 60s, early 70s. And through that period, and we also know that Nixon's most resonant political legacy is the Southern strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of good down-home Americana stories that are told as a part of the quote-unquote Southern strategy that actually was a na- nationwide strategy, of course, that are appealing to people in Steve's position. Mm-hmm. Things will go back to the way they were. Mm-hmm. Like, that—that that is the message of the Southern. It, it was called the Southern strategy... Uh, because that was used most often to appeal to the South, particularly on basically r- rolling back the civil rights movement. I mean, that's that's the thing. I'm not sure. Th- I don't believe that's the part that Stephen King found attractive, right? Mm-hmm. But inside of that narrative was things have gone wacky and weird, and old Tricky Dick's going to get you back on track. Mm-hmm. This might resonate with more recent political things right and so like i under it's a great story he tells about his like political naivete and just being naive and believing anything someone tells you you know the Mm -hmm. we also know steve's story about going um you know witching for water right Mm -hmm. and feeling that actually feeling the 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 dowsing rod go down right and believing that there's some magic in it right i don't know if that's true or not but that's a wonderful story to tell Mm -hmm. this similarly seems like a wonderful story to tell that doesn't quite line up to to what I think I know about Steve, which is what I think I know about Steve, right? I'm not an expert. I'm not the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's actually a perfect bridge into the last thing I wanted to say about these notes, mm-hmm. which is yet more Stephen King revisionism. Yeah. You ready for it? Okay. This is from The Moving Finger, the notes to The Moving Finger. My favorite short sort of short story has always been the kind where things happen just because they happen. In novels and movies, save for movies starring fellows like Stallone and Schwarzenegger, you are supposed to explain why things happen. Let me tell you something, friends and neighbors. I hate explaining why things happen. And my <laughs> efforts in that direction, such as the doctored LSD and resultant DNA changes which create Charlie McGee's pyrokinetic talents and Firestarter, aren't very good. What are you talking no, I'm, about, I'm glad Steve? you also locked onto this because, like... No one has ever loved talking about things and explaining things more than Stephen King. He loves to do it. And also the like weird psychic LSD from Firestarter is actually one of the more elegant (laughs) plot devices he's ever deployed. That's exactly what I thought. I was like, this is actually why are you picking some of the better science fiction writing you've ever done? (laughs) And that's fine. Like, actually, I agree. With Steve in a general sense, which is like, I like a good short story because you can just do the thing, right? right. You don't need to do all the bad. Like, I read um, Justin Cronin's um, uh, book that's like kind of the Stephen King-ish. I mean, it's not kind of Stephen King. It's the the vampire apocalyptic novel, you know, The Passage, maybe? Uh-huh. Yeah, something like that. Did you that. ever read that book? No, I didn't. 
Uh, well, it's it's someone taking a run at Stephen King style writing, um, but uh, it's just full of explanation, like chock full of explanation, worse than Steve. Mm-hmm. And it was like, God, this would be better if there were just vampires killing everybody. <laughs> and I didn't have to learn too much about it. But yeah, it, to me, right, this is yet again. I mean, Stephen King is very good at printing the legend. and He's very good at self-revisionism. Um, this is pure revision. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be kind of keyed into that over the next decade, especially up to and after the accident. Because I think if there are stages of Stephen King's career that we've seen so far, uh, in terms of like just big break eras, getting sober is clearly one of them. Like what he is, has been doing and the kinds of novels he is writing here are different than what he was writing before. Mm-hmm. And then post-accident is going to be a different thing too, I think. And I'm curious if there's a similar set of revisions that go on in Stephen King's writing mm-hmm. after that. Some of those are mythological. I know that they happen. Right. You know, the idea of kind of like the King of Earth gets so much further solidified, even more than it was in the 90s. Right. Um, but I'm wonder- I wonder if there's other stuff. Yeah. Um, well, we'll have to find out. Yeah, I have some uh, flags to plant in that regard. Things to look mm. out for in the future as we as we move through this collection. If you have uh, not listened to this show before, or you haven't listened to any of our short story episodes. Uh, how this works uh, is uh, opposed to like the normal run of things, where we like go through a discussion and then we have a bunch of segments. Uh, in the short story collections, we just take turns summarizing uh, the stories one at a time. And giving our opinion about whether or not it's good. And on the ones that we disagree, that's where we come back together at the end to have a little bit of a discussion about uh, maybe why we disagreed and and how those things played out. Uh, I don't know if this format will actually be sufficient to some of the stuff here, because I think there are going to be stories that say we both agree are not good, but also are probably worth talking about in in a broader context. So we'll we'll see how we can can revise this on the fly. Um, But Cameron, you're starting us out. Uh, this is Dolan's Cadillac. It is a story about a guy whose wife is killed by an evil gangster. And many years later, that guy carves a big hole in the highway and the gangster drives his car into it and is buried alive. This is a Poe pastiche. Mm hmm. Uh, it's, it's fine. I know, I think you don't like this story. No. Um, I'm, I'm medium on it. I think it's a little, it's a little too big. Stephen King in the notes tells us that this is a story that uh, he completed and hated so much he put it in a trunk and then later someone was asking for an unpublished short story and he pulled it out and he liked it more. Um, I don't think you should have pulled it out of this trunk. I think it would have been fine us never having read it. Yeah. But I think it's okay. It's got some fun details in it, but it, it's, it's Bachman-esque, um, it's just a lot of being in a in a, an angry guy's head, and uh, then he kills a dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kills a couple dudes a actually. Couple, I guess. Yeah, uh, I think it's way too long, and I mean, I agree with you. That's not particularly good. Uh, and and it actually starts a trend in some of the stories here that I also want to flag. You mentioned it's a Poe pastiche. Uh, there are a couple places in here where, uh, I mean, well, so there are lots of pastiches in this one. Actually, that's one thing yep. to note. Uh, two, uh, some of the pastiche. What's a, what's a pastiche, Michael? A pastiche, okay. 
a pastiche uh, is a style of writing wherein you are intentionally imitating uh, another author's world, prose, characters, style, uh, that sort of thing. Um, it can be humorous or sort of satirical, but it does not have to be. Sometimes it can be uh, more reverent, more of an, uh, an homage or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, listeners to the show might be familiar with Neil Gaiman's A Study in Emerald. Yes. Which, which is like uh, a, a double pastiche. Mm-hmm. It, it is a story that combines uh, Sherlock Holmes in the style of, of the Holmes stories with Lovecraft. Yes, right. So uh, Dolan's Cadillac as this kind of Poe pastiche is specifically uh, an, an elaboration of uh, the cask of Amontillado. Uh, and it has a problem, which is that the cask of Amontillado is extremely brief and focused comparatively. Uh, and so one of the things that happens in King's pastiches here is that he takes a kind of core idea that I think personally and in, in my relationship and my understanding of the original text that he's kind of like playing with works because of its brevity and he blows it up. Not in like a you know dynamite sense, but in like you know a, 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 an exposure sense, like makes it bigger and more convoluted. Uh, not necessarily in ways that I think serve the the uh, uh, you know textual relationship there. So he Dolan's Cadillac yeah. is long, and it I can tell from the beginning that it's going to be an Amontillado pastiche, right? Like I, I I can just tell that that's where it's going, and it takes so so long to get there, and then to conclude that, and it's like all right, fine. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's plain in the cultural milieu of Stephen King, right? Like, there's a Hoffa reference at the end, and that's the whole thing, right? Jimmy Hoffa disappears. Where is he? Well, he's, you know, buried at the <laughs> buried, buried uh, at the 50-yard line, whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, all this kind of like, oh, he, he was disappeared, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. This is about a guy who, out of nowhere, in an act of revenge, is killing, like, Al Capone. Right. You know, and just disappearing him forever. It's a, like, I think, conceptually, it's a fun story. It would be way better, I think you're right, if it were 25% shorter, uh, it's a story that's great if you love math. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. If you love doing calculations, calculations about like how fast a car needs to be driving in order to hit a, uh, uh you know, a giant grave mm-hmm. and not flip over or whatever. Yeah. Stephen King, who doesn't like explaining things in his stories, <laughs> right. enlists his brother, per the notes to this one, his his like genius polymath brother, to explain the physics entirely of how you could like build a pit to entrap a giant Cadillac. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't. Uh, it's not my favorite. It it does have a return. I I will say this. This is something that's important to think about. Is that what makes Stephen King's first two short story collections so fun to me is that they are chock full of like working class dudes. Mm-hmm. You know, especially Night Shift is just full of like dudes who do jobs and those jobs suck so bad <laughs> that monsters kill them or whatever. Right. Right. Thinking about like Graveyard Shift or uh, even the one about the astronaut. Right. Like mm-hmm. that. That's about a working class astronaut. Right. This is about n- people who are are, uh, uh, you know, uh, the cognitariat. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Right. Like there are people who's uh, who do like intellectual labor, you know, teachers and uh, executive bankers or whatever. And to me, that that like really revealed like I think those stories are less interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one is funny because it takes a dip back into that. You know, he works on the highway, which is a, 
you know, he works on the Summer Highway Crew, mm-hmm. which is a uh, Stephen King go-to. We've seen that a few times over the course of, of these these years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's fascinating to me. There's like a moment where in order to get something done, the character has to be like, all right, I'll use a shovel again. Yeah. I'm going back in. <laughs> They're asking if I'm back. You pick up a shovel. It looks like I'm back. Shoveling blacktop. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, all right. The next story, the end of the whole mess. Uh, after finding out that there is literally something in the water of the town with the lowest crime rate in America, a guy's genius brother brings about world peace by adding the special chemical to the atmosphere. The result is both world peace and wide-scale cognitive decline as everyone gets dementia. And, uh, that's the end of the whole mess. Is this any good? This is a banger. This is like an all-timer Stephen King story. Yeah, yeah, you gotta, uh, if you read one story out of this, you should read this story. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's good as hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and partially because it's a rerun. Mm-hmm. Do, do, have you thought about, uh, what it's a rerun of? No, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in hearing what you're saying. Survivor type. Oh, that's right. Yes, it's got the same sort of like hook at the ending of Survivor type because the the uh, narrator is writing the story as he is experiencing the cognitive decline brought about by uh, uh, the special dementia water. Right. And there's also that kind of like timer element of it, too, which is also in Survivor type, which is like I'm running out of food and water. Mm-hmm. You know, that will make me more and more desperate. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the ending is the same. And also like the, that's the ending of like 400 EC comics. It's right. not, not unique to Steve, but... I thought it was great. I, I I was really worried that I would read this story again. It wouldn't be any, as good, but uh, it is. It's just as good. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a it's a nice take on that sort of ending, too, because it's I mean, it's scary, right? It's chilling. But also his his final words are him scrawling like how much he loves his brother, who whom he's killed. Right. His his brother has asked him uh, to kill him because his brother feels so awful about what he has done. Yeah. Right. So there's there's actually that's the other thing that I think really sells this is uh, it it makes the brother relationship work. Um, Yeah. So uh, next story. Yeah. Uh, It's Suffer the Little Children. Suffer the Little Children is a story that was supposed to be in Night Shift way back and it wasn't. (laughs) Uh, They didn't put it in. Mm -hmm. It is a story where a. Evil school marm <laughs> b- believes that she starts seeing the children, starts seeing their faces shift. They're all little creatures and monsters. Mm-hmm. And so she kills a bunch of kids. The end. <laughs> it's, it's not good. Yeah. I- it's disturbing. <laughs> It's disturbing, and I think even though I like the night shift style, uh, this one doesn't feel as sort of snappy as uh, those do. Just overall, I don't know what it is. Well, the, I mean, it, so it's it's very much a Bradbury. Yes, um, uh huh. Whatever, whatever that story is. I know we've talked about it on here before because Steve's gone back to this well a few times. But um, whatever the story is, uh, is it Zero Hour? Wait, is that Steve? What? <laughs> what are you talking about? Oh, um. Short story, zero hour. No, it is Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was like, oh my God, wait, is that a Stephen King story? That's what was confusing me. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I, was like I don't what think world? it is. But the, the <laughs> I don't, look, I just, I've had a long week. Uh-huh. Uh, the, uh, 
but but it's one of those, right? Which is like, uh oh, or the felt or any of those, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, kids, kids are scary. Yeah. They got their own shit going on, right? Mm-hmm. And this is just that, just running directly into it, and that's fine. That's a perfectly okay story. But this is a notable thing about the quote unquote uneditableness of Stephen King post it, essentially, is that uh, his editor for Night Shift said, uh, it, uh, "We have to cut a story." Steve suggested the story about the fungus man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gray matter. Uh-huh, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's a great story. Uh, and then his editor suggested this, and then they cut this. Mm-hmm. And that was objectively the right choice. <laughs> that other story's better. It is. Gray matter is a better story. Mm-hmm. This story is fine, but is a straight-up Cavalier magazine, you know, uh, you read it and forget it. This is not good. It should not be in this collection. Um, and uh, Steve felt he had to bring it back. I don't think he should have. Uh, he was just desperate to get that reference to Juniper Hill in there. Uh, there is a reference to Juniper uh, Yeah, Shawshank shows up in here. Mm-hmm. The Shank yep. shows up here uh, somewhere, too. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, next story. Uh, next story is The Night Flyer. Uh, Richard Dees, who is the tabloid reporter from The Dead Zone, uh, stumbles upon the case of a serial killer who thinks he's a vampire flies his own plane and targets regional airports, and guess what? It turns out he really is a vampire. And did you know that vampires uh, pee blood? I told you vampires pee blood. I told you that. You didn't believe me. Is it any good? This is a difficult one because this is another, like... uh, this is like a half and half for me. This is a story that I think starts out really interesting and then just, like, utterly crashes in the landing. (laughs) What a metaphor. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I think that happens with a couple stories here where there's like a, a a really interesting idea that then like King doesn't seem to. It's either he doesn't know what to do with it, which I actually don't get the sense. It's almost like he gets bored of it <laughs> uh, because of the way like this is so goofy. Uh, and it's like goofy in a way that's like, all right, I'll roll with it. Right. That. There is this vampire who is flying a little, like, aircraft around and, like, sleeping in uh, the grave earth in, like, the the little, like, cargo compartment and all of the details that Dee's collects where people see him. And he's, like, straight up, he's, he's you know, Barlow from uh, Salem's Lot because he's just dressed like Count Dracula. Like, this man. It's a straight up Dracula. <laughs> he, he is, <laughs> like, Universal Monsters Dracula. <laughs> right. Uh, and just doing Dracula stuff. Right. All of his bearing and comportment. It's all just Dracula. It's literally what if Dracula was finding uh, flying a plane. Uh, But then the end is it pivots on such a bizarre scene where Dee's is like hiding in the bathroom of an airport where uh, the, the vampire is like going on a killing spree. And then he's looking in the mirror and he sees the vampire peeing in a urinal, but cannot see the vampire because it doesn't have a reflection. So he just sees the urine splattering against the the urinal and it's and it's red. It's blood. And it's like, what on earth yeah. is going on For here? For all the <laughs> listeners who heard me last month be like, yeah, it's about the vampire peeing blood. Michael's like, no, what are you talking about? That can't be real. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it's real. Vampires pee blood. Yeah, I blocked this one out. I think it's great. <laughs> I like the whole story. And I, I think, I mean, I think you're objectively correct. I don't think it's very good. It just, it, it does seem like he gets bored. He's yeah. like, God, 
I get what do I have him chase him around some more? What would happen? I don't know. Just let him go. I do like at the very last moment, D's uh when the police show up and there's this massacre happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reporter says, press, dick face, <laughs> in order to be like, oh, don't hurt me, the police. I'm the press. Yeah. It's like, all right, well, good luck on that, bud. Uh, uh, he didn't care about anything, and when the sobs began to tear their way out of his chest again, he closed his eyes, and still he saw the night flyer's bloody urine striking the porcelain, <laughs> becoming visible and swirling down the drain. He thought he would see it forever. That's those are the final lines of the story. Uh-huh. I think that makes it good. That's a commitment to the bit. Yeah. I mean, it, it works in, in a sense of like satire, right? Because the whole point is that D's himself is like a vampire who's like feeding off right. of other people's misery and blah 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 blah. Uh but then like it's such a wild image to have one arrived at and two to repeat as your ending. Yeah. Sound off in the comments. Let us know if you think this is a compelling story. <laughs> the next story is Popsy. Uh, a guy is kidnapping children and kidnaps a vampire child. Popsy is that child's grandfather. That grandfather murders the man. Mm-hmm. This, this story is great. <laughs> it's pretty good. I mean, <laughs> it's good. <laughs> It, it, Who could be mad about it? Yeah, it gets closer to kind of the night shift vibe by by while still uh, feeling a little bit new, which is nice. Well, it's very eighties King, yes. right? You know, please please remember everyone. Stephen King uh, is is a tabloid writer in some ways, right? He is in response to the cultural fears of America, mm-hmm. and in the nineteen eighties, uh, up through now, having your child your child stolen is like the number one horrifying thing, mm-hmm. right? Kids used to run around doing all kinds of shit in the 50s. Stephen King's written a bunch of books about that. Mm-hmm. But now, it's scary for that to occur. And uh, th- this is the thing. There's like there's evil guys going to steal your kids. I, and I do like that it is written from the perspective of the evil guy. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's such a fun, and he's got like a good backstory, right? It's like he owes people money. Right. And so the only way he can do it, and there's this like, awful racist shit in the background too right that there's like quote unquote the turk uh-huh. is the person buying it so it's very much this like white slavery narrative uh-huh. going on uh-huh. here uh, it, uh by the way fyi if you want to see this rerun a second time just watch the movie taken yeah <laughs> which is the exact same racial imaginary that's been going on around white slavery f- throughout the entirety of the 20th century but uh, you know, we get all of that kind of granularity, and then at the end of the day, a fucking vampire shows up <laughs> and just uh, pops him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's great. Very good. Uh, it grows on you. A bunch of old men in Castle Rock discuss a local sort of haunted house where once lived a woman who sexually molested young boys of their generation, and which now appears to grow on its own, adding new wings and features despite being nominally vacant. Uh... Is this good? This is another confusing one for me. I think it sort of is, although I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, I agree. I truly, it feels like such of a, like, partial story. Mm-hmm. It feels like there should be, against my own good knowledge, right, my own wisdom, this should have ten more pages mm-hmm. to it. Because it just kind of ends... Uh, I don't, I, I also don't know what to do with it. Yeah. 
It also is like a, the final, final Castle Rock story, right? Yeah, yeah. King talks about in the notes how um, this was, he wrote a version of this like in the 70s or something, right? So uh, presumably when he was in college or just coming out of it, uh, and then uh, he revised it for this, and as he was revising it, he realized like, oh, this is the aftermath of Needful Things, and these are just like the old men who watched the stuff happen in Castle Rock, and this is like the final real send-off to, to that location. Yeah, because this is where is this where we find out that that Andy has like ruined his life. Uh, yes. Although although we've gotten hints of that before, I think no, it wasn't in the dark half. I think we've gotten hints of that before. Definitely, that Andy Clutterbuck, uh, after his wife dies, uh, in the events of Needful Things, uh, becomes an alcoholic and then like falls through the lake or something. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just a, a this is an interesting uh parallel with um the Salem's Lot story too mm-hmm. that's in what night shift yes that's the post you know uh oh there's vampires out there mm-hmm. <laughs> that whole story but yeah i don't really know what to do with it either the the constructing metaphor literally constructing metaphor mm-hmm. you know that this thing just keeps growing and building on itself even though no one is there you know it's just doing its own thing i don't know what that has to do with this like kept woman who is doing something to these you know young men kids mm-hmm. um it's weirdly loose for a Stephen King story. Right. You know? Yeah. And there's something uh, like haunting about it. And like, if you really want to press on it, it's something like it feels almost like um, like the thing that is haunting these men is like the the nightmare of compulsory heterosexuality or something. Right. Like, yeah, something like that. Right. That that the, it, the clarion call of sexuality itself right. is like bad and like the stuff that happens at the end here uh his cronies would be puzzled however if any of them were there to hear the last two words he speaks gassed out but clear enough the moon yeah it's like i don't know what's up with that right yeah i don't, I don't know. know uh uh what was the other thing i want to mention oh the the house that builds itself we're going to see that come up again in in rose red whenever we watch that for a bonus ode so oh, just that's interesting pointing that out cool Yep. Well, it's also Black House too, right? Uh, yeah, because it gets bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh we got chattery teeth. This is a story about a guy who gets some little uh, comedy chattery teeth. You know, the ones with little feet on them, mm-hmm. and they kill a guy. <laughs> and they're like defensive of him. You know what I mean? They're like defender teeth. Yeah, that's eh, fine. Yeah, this is, uh, I agree, it's sort of fine, like, it's kind of goofy and funny and silly, and it's also, like, the exact sort of story you would make up if you were trying to make fun of Stephen King. (laughs) That's, that is extremely correct. Right, like, man encounters haunted pair of novelty teeth. Right. They kill a guy. Right. And, And it has, look, this is the thing, I know we've remarked on it before, but... The Stephen King go-to horrifying thing to have happen to you is someone unzipping your cheek. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just cutting your cheek up to where it opens up in some flaps, you know, vertically or horizontally, however you choose, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that shows up constantly across Stephen King. That's that. That's a, uh, you know, uh, what in the Kingiverse? An opened up cheek. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, is a thing that, that shows up perhaps more than greasers do at this point. <laughs> uh, the 50s to, are fading. Yeah, right. Uh, it's, it's the time of cheeks. The time, like the the Joker is coming, right? <laughs> Steve is like sensing it through the time stream. The Joker's already here. 
he is already here. He is. Like, this is this is ninety three. The Joker's been here, yeah. but uh, yeah, I, there's something about it going on. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, yeah, it's it's fine. It's it's okay. It the it uh yeah. You don't need to read this one. Yeah. Next story. Oh boy, <clears throat> dedication. Yeah, how are you going to summar- summarize this one, wise guy? Uh-huh. Smart ass, go ahead. <laughs> Get in there, Michael. <laughs> a black woman who works as a housekeeper in a high-end New York City hotel explains to her friend how her son, a newly minted successful novelist, may be the reincarnation of an extremely racist and successful white novelist whose rooms she always cleaned when he stayed at the hotel through a convoluted magic process wherein she felt a compulsion to lick his semen from his bedsheets. Is this story any good? No! It is baffling, this story. As you said, like, it is It is so well written in, like, a craft sense, right? So well constructed. Wonderfully written, like, yeah. Like, there's so much, like, good in here, and, like, I'm really on board for a lot of it, and then we get to the part that I ended my little summary there with, and it is like, what on earth is going on? Oh God! <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna read from Stephen King's note here at the end. Uh huh. Like for most of these historically, these have not been notes that were clarifying to the intent of the story. Uh huh. You know what I mean? But because these are also most of the stories in this collection are so like psychologically driven and also these kind of almost lit ficky kind of stuff, uh-huh. right? Like. You know, there some of them like this story is one inch away from a New Yorker yes. story. Yes, yes, I had that exact same thought, right? A New Yorker story with like a little bit of magic realism thrown in. Right. So this is what Steve says about it. This is not a very politically correct story. And I think a lot of readers, the one who want to be scared with the same comfy old boogies and funhouse demons, are going to be outraged by it. I hope so. I've been doing this job for quite a while now, but I like to think that I'm not quite ready for the old rocking chair yet. The stories of Nightmares and Dreamscapes are, for the most part, the sort that critics categorize and then dismiss as horror stories. And the horror story is supposed to be the kind of evil-tempered junkyard dog that will bite you if you get too close. This one bites, I think. Am I going to apologize for that? Do you think I should? Isn't that, the risk of being bitten, one of the reasons you picked this book up in the first place? I think so. And if you get thinking of me as your kindly old Uncle Stevie, a sort of of end-of-the-century Rod Serling, I will try even harder to bite you. To put it another way, I want you to be a little bit afraid every time you step into my parlor. I want you unsure about how far I'll go or what I may do next. Now that I said that, let me just add that if I really thought dedication needed to be defended, I never would have offered it up for publication in the first place. A story that can't serve as its own defense lawyer doesn't deserve to be published. It's Martha Rosewall, the humble maid who wins this battle, not Peter Jeffries, the big shot writer, and that should tell the reader all he or she needs to know about where the, my sympathies lie. On the other hand, or, oh, one other thing, it seems to me now that this story, originally published in 1985, was a trial cut for a novel called Dolores Claiborne. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating to me. I picked that up. I picked up on that like immediately. I was like, oh, well, the narrative device yeah. is, is very simple, yeah. very voicey. Mm-hmm. Um. But but unwilling to commit to the voice too, right? Like has to cut out to third person narration occasionally. Yeah. Um. But the thing that like I think this is a, a story that cannot defend itself. No. <laughs> and I think maybe he is saying that on racial grounds, right? Because there is something extremely provocative 
uh, about the notion that this, uh, you know, a black woman made in New York from Alabama. Yes. They're both from Alabama. She is from Babylon, Alabama, which is a location in the novels of Michael McDowell, most specifically the setting of his novel Cold Moon Over Babylon. Oh. Yeah. Um, but uh, so there's that. Uh, and then the the writer is from like a plantation family, you know, mm-hmm. like an old South family. And he's like a huge asshole and he's a racist. And, he, and you know what? He, even worse, he hates John F. Kennedy. Yep. <laughs> he hates all the Kennedys, in fact. He holds a party uh, when Kennedy you, gets assassinated. Yeah. And so that's how you know he's bad. Uh, Andy, put it in the spreadsheet, please. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, but but the the thing that really falls apart here, like the indefensible part in terms of like not content of the story. It's just gross. It's gross to read about this person, like, uh, chowing down mm-hmm. <laughs> in the way that it happens here. It's just like very strange. Um, and in fact, one of the characters in the story vomits when it's described, mm-hmm. uh, in a pretty cool moment of writing actually. But the, the thing, but the, the thing that's weirder here, right. Is that Stephen King categorizes itself as like a win and a loss, mm-hmm. or like someone coming out on top. And I don't, I just really don't understand. Like, is it that the the racist old white man is subsumed by a generation of black writers? Yeah, that seems to be my read. Is that the win? Yeah. Like the the big win? Yeah. Okay. I mean, cool, I guess. Right. Well, then, the, but that's the thing is that sort of the other, like, the backhand of this that is even sort of hinkier is that this is ultimately redemptive of that white man and his talent, which is right. right? That's, yeah, right. Right. Like, he misspent his talent as a writer by being a huge piece of shit racist. And so he gets redeemed by being reincarnated as this, like, black woman's son who writes, like, you know, a very similar novel with a very similar title and, like, almost to the letter, right, uh, this is where the title comes from of the story, writes the same dedication, right, with some words swapped mm-hmm. out. Um, so, right. it's it's weird. Uh, and then there's all this, like, stuff with the, um, uh, what do they call her? Like, the, the do they call her, like, a bruja woman? Yeah, um, something like right. that. Uh, kind of a witch. Yes, right. This kind of like a witch woman figure uh, who sets all of the weird stuff into motion. Uh, and she has all this stuff about, like, because the, the, the kid's father, uh, his biological father, is a character in the story who's, like, uh, uh, abusive and so on and so forth. And he gets, like, uh, he dies while trying to rob a liquor store, I think, his gun. Yeah, because the gun blows up in his hand and shoots into his head, which is the, uh, in Stephen King, in the Kingiverse, that kills roughly 47% of human beings. <laughs> A gun blowing up and shooting through your skull. It's actually a, a thing, a failsafe built into the weapons by the gun company, specifically for when you're trying That's to rob right. liquor stores. That's right. Um, uh, if you're if you're within the uh, the explosion field, <laughs> and they and you gotta you gotta kick up to the man every month to keep the explosion field on. You know they're getting you. Yeah, they're robbing you, coming and going. Uh, uh, but there's a whole bunch of stuff about him being, you know, like the, the biological father or whatever, but then they call the, the writer, um, the natural father. So there's this idea of like dual fatherhood, right? Uh, uh, dual parentage. And I want to plant a flag here because this is something I think we need to think about in the future when we're finishing up the Dark Tower books and we get to Mordred, who has exactly Mm the same thing going on with like, uh, except it's not 
specifically racialized there uh, in, in that in the books where Mordred finally shows up. Right. But I remember him talking specifically about uh, his two daddies. Right. And kind of like yeah. the dual parentage that Mordred has from Roland Deschain and the Crimson King himself and how that uh, very interestingly is mediated through the body of a black woman. Yep, we'll get there. Yep. Um, uh, you know, uh, just plant a little flag for that. Yep. But uh, yeah, I think I, I agree with you. And also there's this this fixation, as, as you're talking about here too, last thing about this story. There's this fixation of he was a good writer, but, mm-hmm. right? You know, uh, and ironically, that is the this story, right? It's a good story. It's a well-written, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, in fact, its content is basically terrible and not like terrible on political grounds in terms of like, uh, I mean, I think it's unsavory, but it's not like, oh, the story has to be, if, if the story were better written or better considered, or maybe if Steve thought harder about it, I think there's a way to tell a story like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what is the inheritance of it? Do I think Stephen King has his finger to the pulse enough of these concerns in order to write that story convincingly? Or do I think that Stephen King has like a friend group or people he could talk to in order to make that story work? No. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like sociologically, I think that Stephen King might not be able to write this kind of story in a convincing manner. Um, But uh, in in a general sense, like at the bottom, I think it's just not very good. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Next story. Uh, the moving finger. There's a finger in a toilet and it fights a guy. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a finger in a sewer system and it, and it comes after a guy. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It, I mean, actually, let me revise that. It's really bad. <laughs> I wanted to be charitable to it because it is about a big silly finger. Uh, and I had good memories of this story because mm-hmm. it's truly haunting. You know, there's, a, there's like a big finger. It starts coming out of the toilet. It's got all these knuckles on it. It also comes out of the sink sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and, um, it's mostly, you know, kind of a psychological breakdown story. Yeah. This guy's wife goes to work when she's at work. Finger come. Mm -hmm. Not good. Uh, Terrible story. I, 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 we've totally torpedoed the format here in terms of like uh, addressing our grievances at the ending. We, we, so I'm just going to say, I love this story. I've always loved it. I still love it. I think this is fucking great. Like you like this story, this and the end of the whole mess are like my two favorites out of this. Those are the ones that I suggested for our reading list. Here is why I like this story. This is uh, (laughs) Stephen King uh, converging with uh, Junji Ito. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Where it's a I love and you know what he said there in those uh, in those notes at the end where, um, you know, the the beauty of a short story is sometimes a thing just happens and you have the characters dealing with it. I really like that personally. Right. I've written things like that. I I like writing that type of thing. And I like people who play with that, particularly like, you know, Junji Ito, um, who, if you're listening to this and not familiar, uh, is a a manga artist uh, and did like Uzumaki. uh, That's kind of his most famous one about a town being slowly taken over by spirals. Um, But the thing that Junji Ito does that I really, really like is sort of this kind of thing where you have a very normal situation where a character encounters something that is uh, horrifically impossible and also absurd, like to the point that it is sort of funny and it only stops being funny because the absurd thing 
insists on being there. Like, it will not go away. Like, despite the fact that it's, like, silly, it looks bizarre, and it's impossible, it just keeps going, it keeps escalating, uh, right. and weirder and weirder, st- like, you know, and the fallout is, is you know, horror and tragedy. Um, and that's just a, like, that's that's the vibe for, for Michael Lutz. I, the problem with that, I agree with everything you're saying. Mm-hmm. But the problem, that the flaw in your logic is that I've read Junji Icho, and those stories are good. Uh-huh. And this one is not. <laughs> this one is reliant on a structural metaphor of Jeopardy. Yeah. The television program. Yes. That only emerges halfway through the story. <laughs> it's, it shows up within the first couple paragraphs. Yeah, but it only matters when he starts, like, talking about Jeopardy constantly halfway through. <laughs> Michael, I cannot believe you like this story. This is this is shaking me to oh, my core. It's so good, right? Just this I idea. I mean, I like the image. Yeah. Like, the one-sentence summary of it's great. Big finger attacks guy. Right. You know, look out for finger. I've played Elden Ring. <laughs> I love it. Right. But, uh, yeah, no. the And the, the whole ending with the cop. Right, yeah. so like it comes, it comes up at the end. He's like freaking out. He's yelling because he's being attacked by a big finger, and uh, you know this like what he's like an Irish guy. Yes, he's like straight up a New York Irish police officer. <laughs> right. Um. Well, no, it's even before that. Like, there's an Irish guy who like, uh. Oh no, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. It, they, I, for some reason, I was splitting it up with the guy he yells at earlier. Uh, but yeah, there's like a straight up Irish police officer from uh, uh, Gangs of New York uh-huh. who shows up in the story. And then they have like a long conversation mm-hmm. about like, did you kill your wife? All that stuff. Like, I don't know that I. Yeah, it's not not for everything you said is correct. Mm-hmm. I love a good I love when a crate shows up and, you know, eats your wife or whatever. Uh-huh. Right. And who know where it come from? Great. Good to me. This no good. <laughs> We got sneakers. Uh, sneakers. This is this is another really weird one. A sound engineer becomes fixated on a pair of dirty sneakers he sees under a stall of the men's room in the building where his current office is, and which never seem to move. Semicolon. They turn out to belong to the ghost of a drug dealer who was murdered in that stall, and may also be some sort of metaphor for the guy. This guy's like repressed homosexuality or something. Yeah. Is this story any good? No. Uh. Although I like, I I can sense like something behind it. This is a story that it like ends, and I'm like, what on earth just happened? Yeah. Like. <laughs> What am I supposed to take away from this? That That's, uh, you know, I've said that maybe a couple times now. That's the vibe of a lot of these stories is um, because the, it's something like, on the one hand, I know how Stephen King likes to write his ghost stories. Ghosts are like reflections of the people who see them and they express kind of like underlying psychological tensions or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a lot of ink is spilled over this protagonist's, like the fact that his boss comes on to him and he's like really offended by it. Um and at the same time, it is not clear if we are to understand him as, like, a man with, like, repressed homosexuality, or if he's, like, when he's upset because his boss came on to him, if he's just, like, genuinely having a moment of, like, gay panic, and if this is, if, if gay panic is what's being worked out here, because the other half of the story, mm-hmm. quite literally, is just, this is a ghost of a drug dealer. 
And maybe his boss yes. killed him, but also like that. No, not not maybe well, his boss killed him. You say that, but like that's really an assumption that he makes, right? That's part of this like big story he spins out for himself at the end. And I'm not sure, again, how much we're supposed to trust him because like how much is he like trying to avoid certain truths about himself versus like whatever else is happening? I think you're doing too much work for the story. Like I that that is a plausible read. I think you're doing too much work. Yeah. Um. I think it is a story about uh like. I think King, knowing King, like I, I, in some ways, I think you're doing, uh, you know, what if Stephen King were like a 1.5% better writer than he is, right? <laughs> like this to me is a story about a man who uh, is gay and has is it, it totally repressed that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not even closeted, just, you know, completely repressed and other people see it very clearly mm-hmm. and he does not. And uh, there's a ghost that he sees very clearly and that other people also see very clearly that is the backstory for his gay boss. Yes. Who is bad, uh-huh. but not because he's gay. Just be- for other reasons. <laughs> because he's an opportunistic murderer. Right. Right. He's kind of a weasel. Yeah. Like, I, I it just feels very flat to me. And like, there's some I, I, I think a deeper read on it that you're doing is like, um. That's what I would do if I were like teaching the story because I do think King has very much on accident. I don't think it's purposeful, but has laid a the grounds for a much more complex reading here. Mm-hmm. But I really think this is just like late '80s Steve trying to figure it out um, and trying to do this kind of story and trying to stretch a little bit, as we've seen him doing, you know, post it really, mm-hmm. uh, po- well, post Needful Things uh, probably. I think he's just trying to stretch. I think he's trying to get into a new character space. He's trying to work with this guy. Um, and ultimately doesn't figure it out um, because and, and there's some complexity here. The because one of the major scenes here is where his boss like grabs his crotch, right? Yeah. You know, kind of at dinner, and he's like, "Oh, what's going on?" And his boss is like, "Well, you're gay, right? Like, just I thought you were ready to be out." And he's like, "No, no, I'm not." And then he like runs to the restroom and comes back, and they're like, "All right, let's forget the whole thing, right?" Which is a very common sexual assault kind of story mm-hmm. right um that, that's a thing that occurs to people all the time um uh, no matter what your sexual desire is um this kind of thing uh and to me that reads a lot like and feels a lot like in micro because it's a short story what's going on in gerald's game mm. around jesse kind of coming to grips with the reality of her life mm-hmm. you know that all these little pieces that felt diff you know that felt um diffracted with one another they all kind of revolve around the same horrifying thing that happens to her but also like almost metaphysical event that runs into it at the same time uh that's what the ghost is here too right and i think you're right that 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 smashes into the way that stephen king writes ghost stories which are always about the people that see the ghosts Mm -hmm. um and so rarely about the ghosts themselves unless it's a big finger or whatever right (laughs) unless it's something that is like ec ec comics right um level so I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I read it a lot more flatly than you do. I also don't think it's very good. Yeah. Um, but but yeah. Mm-hmm. Next one. Uh, you know, they got a hell of a band. Some people get lost and they end up in a town where all the dead rock stars live. <laughs> Is it any good? No. Nope. <laughs> Not not even a little bit. Uh, King says in the notes, he was like, I don't think this story really gets creepy and crawly until the last six pages. And he's right. 
<laughs> like this story, nothing. It's mostly about people driving around. Yeah. In a car. Right. Like nothing really starts happening until the last couple pages. And even then, like what is happening is. It could have been compelling, but it's not quite right. And it's also one of these moments um, where uh, King is also shouting out intertexts. Like when they first see the town, the man and the woman, it like it looks so picturesque. And uh, the woman thinks of the Bradbury short story, Mars is Heaven, which is really great. Uh where, like, the Martians uh, receive the uh, uh, astronauts from Earth by uh, creating, like, a replica, like, small Earth town that is, like, is recognizable to each of the astronauts as, like, their hometown from when they were kids. And they, like, the Martians take on the forms of uh, their friends and family. And then in the night, they just, like, kill them all. Yeah, um, it's horrifying. Yeah. Uh, Martian Chronicles is great. It is. It's real good. Really unfortunate about Ray Bradbury as a human being. Yes. Uh-huh. Right. Um, uh, so it's got like the, the protagonist of, you know, they got a hell of a band. She thinks of that story explicitly. And then it's just like, yeah, like what if, what if that happened? Except the picturesque little town you saw was populated, not by your uh, friends and family, but all of the dead rock stars. And also it turned out the town was like purgatory or hell. And they just like keep you there to be their audience forever. Uh, maybe the most, in yep. maybe the most interesting aspect of that is the way that King is like, uh, screaming about how like nostalgia for the fifties is poison, but eh. <laughs> yeah, being locked in there forever might not be great, yeah. but it's also that's undone by the fact that it's not just nostalgia for the fifties. I think the story would be better if it were like El Elvis's private heaven is your hell. Yeah. Like, that would be good, but it's not, right? Like, at the end, we get this, like, run that's like, uh, you know, uh, we got a great show for you tonight. We got the big bopper, Freddie Mercury, mm -hmm. Johnny Ace, Keith Moon, Brian Jones. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it just it keeps running through, and it's like, oh, it's all, every rock and roll star's heaven is your hell. Right. Um, you know, basically, oldies radio. And for, for this, it's not oldies radio. Some of these people are, you know, 10 years old. Yeah. Uh, Freddie Mercury, fairly recent at that point. But the... Uh, yeah, it w it would be a better story if it were pared down to like a Satan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know I mean, like Elvis as Mep Mephisto. You know, <laughs> that'd be okay. Uh, home delivery. <clears throat> a woman living on an island off the coast of Maine finds herself pregnant after her husband dies in an accident at sea. Then the zombie apocalypse happens, and she has to fight his returned corpse while the men of the island obliterate the local graveyard. Uh, is this any good? This story is fine, except, uh, the sliver of stuff we get about the thing that is causing the zombies, which is this thing called Star Wormwood, uh, rips an insane amount of ass. This is my moving finger. Yeah. This is, this is the best story maybe in the collection. Mm -hmm. It's, it's tied with, uh, the end of the whole mess. Mm -hmm. It's just great. It, the, the kind of down-home simplicity of what's going on is by the way this happens on little tall island uh, Did it, you it, that? it happens on jenny oh, island. The island next door. right it's yeah, the yeah. island next they're to from little tall, little tall. <laughs> yeah yeah because they're they she grows up on little tall yeah but doesn't live there you're right jenny mm -hmm. jenna salt mm -hmm. i bet that's gonna come up at some point uh but yeah it, but partially for the stuff that you're talking about but i love the kind of zoom zoom in zoom out that happens here where it's like Zoom and weigh in on her life, and she's just like a regular ass human being. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's like all of this like narrative narrative misogyny built into it too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is like hard to know. Steve, uh, uh, you know, is this knowingly done? 
Uh, or is this like just absolute, hey, I'm just writing about simple folk mm-hmm. and the way they are, you know, hard to know. Uh, I don't think that, I don't think it's the, uh, the best perspectival stuff he's ever worked on. Uh, but, uh, but then you zoom out to the like, uh-oh, guess what's happening? Zombies are being made by this big ass orb, this worm orb. Yeah. It, it's so good. Like it's a it, truly a, a listeners of the show might have this as a good comp. Like dead space is happening up there, right? Yeah, like that's yes. what it is. Like we get like a, a sort of system shock style, like transcript of like the 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 joint uh, astronaut mission that goes to confront this thing that's apparently causing the dead to rise, and it is like horrifying the stuff that happens, and it's horrifying because we only uh, get the dialogue from it, right? There's no visual, but the things that people are describing are like so horrifying and awful. Uh, it's so good. I love it. Yeah, and there are people screaming. Someone is like, uh, what, what does he say? Uh, scream. They, this is like... Um transcription screams sounds like a toothless old man sucking up mashed potatoes yep <laughs> and so it is like oh it's in my brain yeah it's eating my brain uh, i i love it it's good but uh, there's this michael lutz ass character in there mm-hmm. named dagbolt yeah i this you think this a, is a michael lutz character i want to hear you expound yes. on this because you would absolutely write a dagbolt i would you would absolutely write a man who passionately and, and or passionlessly i should say narrates watching people's brains get sucked out around him yes you you specifically would think this is funny as a writer <laughs> tell me tell me i'm wrong. i mean you're not wrong right because that's the whole transcript is everyone's like screaming they're like you, you know they're doing the the thing that stephen king loves to do where people in an immense amount of pain start like screaming for their mothers uh yes. so like you know and the, the the thing it's like these worms right these worms it's like this weird orb and there are like worms that split off from it and they have some sort of acid uh and they're like eating through the space shuttle and like getting into the astronaut suits um and uh uh this guy dagbold or whatever uh he's like an amateur astronomer who noticed the thing and so like uh because of his sort of like little newfound fame they let him go on the mission and then he's the one who lasts the longest and he very uh calmly is like describing just like all of the chaos around him and like mentioning that like even though these people are being like dismembered like their body parts aren't dying like their arms and legs are still moving and he can see like eyes and heads rolling around around uh and then he dies but throughout the whole thing he's he's like a, a very like chipper british man <laughs> yes just just telling you what's happening mm-hmm. uh i believe that prudence dictates a strategic retreat to the aft storage compartment the rest of the crew is dead no question about that pity brave bunch even that fat american who kept rooting around in his nose but in another sense i don't think static yeah <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? It's just like, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. like he's that guy. But yeah, you would think that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, I think probably you're you're probably bigger on this story than I am in general because I, as a rule, am not big on zombie stories. I don't find them very compelling. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I, I, I still like a zombie story. I'm into mm-hmm. it. I do like uh, on the little tall thing. Uh, so we do get confirmation that Selena St. George went back to Little Tall Island one time. But, and this is the thing. For a Thanksgiving dinner, whereas the ending of Dolores Claiborne, it's Christmas. So we've got like, you know, it's it's levels of the tower, man. This is the level of the tower where Selena only came for Thanksgiving and it's mentioned quite specifically. She never came back. So maybe the events of Dolores Claiborne happened. Right. Uh, But they didn't happen in quite the same way. There wasn't like, you know, a, a reconnection at the end. And also this means there is a chance that there is a story happening where like 
Dolores Claiborne is fighting zombies over on Little Tall Island. <laughs> How many can she fit down that well? Right. <laughs> oh, my God. He could come back. Well, and that's what that's the thing, right, is that uh, uh, when um, uh, uh, the main character of this story, I don't remember her name, when she kills her husband, she dismembers his like zombie body and throws him down the cistern in the basement. Yeah. And the, yeah. the lid is, you know, uh, uh, akin to an eclipse or something. Uh, uh, Maddie. Yeah, Maddie, Maddie Pace. So. Rainy season. Mm-hmm. It's yours. Oh, that's me. Sorry. <laughs> My bad. Uh, two people, children of the corn-like, go to a sleepy main town where they meet an old man who tells them to leave for the night because it's going to rain frogs. They don't listen. It rains frogs. They kill the people. We find out there's some sort of ritual that that ensures prosperity for the town. Uh, the old man and the old woman he talks to both feel weird about it. <laughs> the end. Isn't it good? It's not good. No. It's not it's good. N- it's really bad. Yeah. There's one good part of it. Uh, that almost makes up for the whole thing. Can you guess what the one good part of it is? Uh, is it how like all of the toads evaporate when the sun rises? That's not. Even though that is double used in this uh-huh. thing, that's also that shows up in the ten o'clock people too. What's up with Stephen King? Just like oh, whatever. They just disappear. It's a really convenient <laughs> way to get rid of corpses. It is, but yeah, uh, yeah. I played a video game. I know about that, <laughs> but it's just very funny. But, no, the other thing. I'll give you a second thing. What's the best part of the story? Uh, the farting dog. <laughs> no, it's when they all, they go hide in the basement because these things are biting their ass apart. Uh, the the, know, the frogs with big old teeth. Say, the thing you forgot in your summary is that the frogs have like huge mouths filled with razor teeth. Yeah, I just think people would, would be able to, you know, <laughs> you can put that. But they go down into the basement because they think they're going to be safe. They got to block all the windows, blah, blah, blah. And they're down there hiding and waiting. And then the coal chute blows open <laughs> and a jet stream of, of uh, razor sharp teeth frogs shoot out and eat them all. Yes. That's the best part. Oh man. It's explicitly described as a, uh, uh, a jet. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. And that was when the door of the coal chute unused for years, but still intact suddenly swung open under the weight of all the toads, which had fallen or hopped into it. And hundreds <laughs> of them poured out in a high pressure jet. That's good. <laughs> that might make the whole story good, but unfortunately, I had to read the rest. Of yeah, it. Uh, I agree. It's 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 not good, and it's another one um, where, like, at the very beginning, uh, one of the protagonists—I don't remember if it was the husband or wife—is like, "Wow, this peculiar little town sure reminds me of the town from Shirley Jackson's The Lottery." And wouldn't you know it? It turns out that the lottery is happening because they have to like this. The the town's ritual is about feeding these strangers to toads uh, to ensure their prosperity, whatever that means, Uh, except, you know, whereas the lottery is a very precise story. Uh, like a well-oiled machine. This is bizarre. It has all these moving parts. Uh, also, also, uh, we get that thing at the end with the old Mainers, the man and the woman, talking about how, like, part of the ritual is, like, they have to warn them and then, you know, tell them about the toads and then, like, they won't believe them and they'll go to the house anyway and mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. This is the this right. is the cabin in the woods. I also thought that. I was like, True Goddard read this. Yeah. I was like, yes. Some sort of 
house in the woods, <laughs> perhaps a cabin. <laughs> they were, you know, I've gone back and forth on that movie a lot. Uh-huh. I, maybe I got to check it out again. Where are you on that movie? Uh, the last time I watched it, I was watching it. I, I was teaching it. Um, mm. And when you teach a film, you can you'll, you'll often teach it for different reasons than why you would watch a film. Um, anyway, I think that movie is an interesting idea that could have been done a little bit better. Mm. Yeah, I wish it hadn't been the murder family. Yeah, like that's sort of the 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 thing, right? Like when when that movie's imagination kicks in, I remember watching it in the theaters actually and being like, "Oh hell yeah." Uh but also sort of like <laughs> that relative I think it's a movie that like works in a theater specifically. Uh-huh. Cuz I had the same feeling. I watched it in the theater, I was like, "Dang, this was really good and really fun." Mm-hmm. And then I watched it at home and I thought, "This movie's terrible. It has is full of bad ideas." <laughs> and then later I was like, "Oh, this is okay. Yeah. This is fine." I like when that Hemsworth runs right into that wall. That's so funny. <laughs> it's very good. Uh, My Pretty Pony. Uh, An old man over many, many pages tells his grandson about the way your experience of time changes as you grow older. Is this story any good? Uh, Unfortunately, no. I think this story is pretty boring. I think this is one of the worst stories I've ever read. Yeah. I think it's very bad. <laughs> It, like, made me mad. Really? It made you mad? Yes. It's such a waste of time. Yeah, it's sort it's of, su- yeah. It's such, like, Stephen King, like, uh, the saccharine bullshit, yeah. right? Like, this is Stephen King at his worst. This is, like, the golden glow of the nostalgia era around it. Uh, this little kid being the good little kid, but he's not too smart. He's like the simple little kid. You know what I mean? But, mm-hmm. oh, golly, he's got a heart of gold. And his great old peepaw telling him everything about life. And, and, oh, he loves it when his grandpa laughs. And, oh, it's so good. Damn, that dude's heart's all fucked up. He's gonna die. <laughs> you know what I mean? This, like, saccharine sweet whatever. I've seen the end of The Godfather. <laughs> I've seen the final scene. I saw him in the tomato patch, okay? Yeah. I've seen this. Uh-huh. I've also seen the opening scene of Blue Velvet. <laughs> we're covered okay we're good yeah we're donezo yeah get the hell out of here steve it's really weird that you're right it's like all saccharine sweetness and then it's weird that this is actually an excerpt from a story that he was trying to write that was going to be a book looks cool as hell this what you're about to describe i why did stephen king not write this book it was going to be a bachman book about like a hardened like a uh, contract killer right and this was going to be his flashback to when he was a child uh, and in some ways, like, it still feels like that. This feels like a story that, uh, like, it's a scene, it's a situation, and it's got some characters, but it feels like it should be a part of a larger narrative where the lessons learned or sort of the ideas expounded here, like, play out for someone. Uh but no, uh, King also says in, in that note, right, that one of the reasons, well, maybe not one of the reasons, uh, but uh, that Bachman project failed uh because he this is one of the stories where he says he was at a very dark time in his life and like yeah. in writing this this was also when um uh the bachman pseudonym quote unquote died yeah that's unfortunate yeah uh but uh, the thing you left out of that summary is that not only was it like a hardened contract killer it was like basically richard bachman's oceans 11 yeah yeah right it was like so it's like he he got the the king of like murderers and sociopaths and psychopaths getting them all together and they were like gonna do a crime and then get knocked off one by one Mm -hmm. and like i i want to read richard bachman's the stand (laughs) 
You know what right. I mean? That's just about like the worst people doing the worst shit and then it going really bad for them. Mm-hmm. That seems cool to me. Yeah. No, that would be interesting. But yep. Instead we, we get didn't this. Get it. Yep. Unfortunate. Um I had sorry right number. Mm-hmm. Ah, God. It's uh, a teleplay about people recording phone calls from the future and the past. Yeah. Sort of. It's terrible. It's very bad. It doesn't read well as a teleplay. Mm-mm. And I haven't seen Sorry Right Number, but I bet the episode, it t- was turned into an episode of Tales from the Dark Side. That's got to be bad, right? There's no yeah. way this can be good. I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't seen it either. But I agree with you that it is uh, uh, not particularly compelling as a teleplay. No. It's it's very boring to read. Mm-hmm. Like, very boring to read. Right. It's got a Twilight um, zone idea, but, like, none of the energy or interest that drives a good Twilight Zone-type story. Well, I do think, yeah, in that, that, in that thing I read earlier from the note for dedication, the, de- the dedication note, mm-hmm. if you will, <laughs> uh, where he's like, I don't want to be my generation's Rod Serling, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to have moral. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a problem here. Like... You could imagine a world in which this is like has some sort of takeaway from it, and it actively dodges that. Mm-hmm. Other than like, oh, the the opportunities that got away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. What's the what's frequency is the name of that movie? You know what I'm talking uh, about? Yeah, where he talks to his dad through like the ham radio or whatever. Right. This yeah. is basically that idea, yes, right? Yes. Uh huh. And that's good. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's good. That is a better movie than this is a teleplay. Mm-hmm. I guess I should say. Um, you know, it's got a Quaid in it. <laughs> Who hates a Quaid? Anyway, this is not very good. Yeah. Next story. Uh, the 10 o'clock people. A man trying to quit smoking realizes because of the biological or chemical effects of quitting smoking, he can see that some of the wealthy and powerful in the world around him are secretly hideous bat creatures, and other people trying to quit smoking can see them too, and they form a resistance movement that is betrayed but then reforms itself. Uh, It's the plot of They Live But For People Quitting Smoking. Uh, Is it any good? (laughs) No. Oh... I think it's good. I I think like it is so transparently just the plot of they live, but about quitting smoking that I cannot get over it. Well, it's 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 not just they live. It's they live plus uh, Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. Right. Because like in they live at the end, the the creatures are revealed. Right. You know what I mean? Like is revealed that they are big monsters. That's Mm -hmm. that's the whole uh comedy bit at the very right, end right, right? right final scene that's not possible here you know that these people keep the bat the batman in their head mm-hmm. you know they can see them and they know how to like dose on it or whatever um uh but uh but they got to go do clandestine missions right it's a guerrilla war from here on out you just like holding the book in your head at the end of fahrenheit 451 um I think it's good. Okay. I mean, I don't think it's great. Yeah. I used to think this was great. Mm-hmm. Before, when I was like 11 years old and I hadn't seen They Live, <laughs> I thought this was one of the greatest stories ever told. Because <laughs> it's cool. But if you, ha- if you have seen They Live, you're like, yeah, Stephen King, there's a dishonesty to this. Uh-huh. There's no way he doesn't know about They Live. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, it just seems impossible to me. And there's a dishonesty in, like, just absolutely pretending like that story doesn't exist. Right. And it is not mentioned at all. And I was double checking on Wikipedia. And apparently they lived as uh, based on a story called Eight O'Clock in the Morning. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't know what that eight o'clock refers to, but like, hmm, isn't that interesting? Uh, the 10 o'clock people specifically refers to the people who come down out of the it, it takes place in downtown Boston. Um, all these people who come down out of these like uh, buildings that house, you know, like uh, uh, like bank headquarters and things. Uh, and they they come down at 10 o'clock and they have their morning cigarette for the day because this is written at a time when uh, people are starting to not be able to smoke indoors. Right. We're getting smoking bans indoors. And there's a fascinating thing at the end of uh, the book with the in the notes where. Steve says, I was trying to bring a little bit of attention to the ways that maybe we're just reproducing separate but equal. Hmm. But yes, there's this whole thing about, uh, that, like, of second class citizens. Uh huh. Stephen King has, still into the 90s, never found an opportunity to allegorize something through American race relations. Mm hmm. Uh, and not gone for it. Yeah. You know, anything where, uh, a given group of people could be allegorized to be black Americans. Steve's going to go for it yeah. every time. Yeah. It's very annoying. I, I, I hope he stops doing that at some point. <sighs> uh, because unfortunately I do have to reveal to you, uh, that being a smoker is not like living in Jim Crow. <laughs> no, they are not comparable in any way, shape or form. And of course this is Stephen King writing in a character, whatever, but we have seen this form, mm -hmm. this like, the ease of which characters make the jump from I am experiencing some light friction in my life. Therefore, this is just like the civil rights movement that obviously it's kind of a, a, a scab that King likes to pick. Mm -hmm. uh, the name of that story at eight o'clock in the morning was written by Ray Nelson. And it is called that because spoilers for the six page story. He dies at eight o'clock in the morning. The character does oh, okay. the, the nada character. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, let, uh, let me tell you this. I just flipped open my Bev Vincent volume that I bought for last episode. Uh -huh. You know, that new kind of coffee table book. Shortly before Nightmares and Dreamscapes was published, one of its stories, Omni's Last Case, was made available as an ebook the first time King was published electronically. Oh. Yeah, that's all I have to say. Okay. Crouch Inge. Yep. Uh, Crouch Inge. Uh, <laughs> Crouch in. A man and a woman go to to a creepy part of a big city, uh -huh. uh, and they meet a bunch of Lovecraftiana and uh, experience uh, European folk horror. Uh huh. And uh, the guy dies, mm -hmm. and the woman leaves. Mm -hmm. The end. Mm -hmm. Peter Straub lives there. <laughs> is, is it good? No. No. <laughs> It literally at one point the story just starts listing off Lovecraft monsters. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah, it's a very uh, uh, awkward engagement with the Lovecraftian tradition. Uh, Crouch End appears to be inspired by Hobbs End, uh, which is the name of the. Fi it's both of them are fictional, but Hobbs End is the name of the uh, London neighborhood that is being excavated in uh, Quartermass in the Pit, and it, it is yeah. revealed that there's like a bunch of like space goblins, Tommy Knockers, actually, essentially, uh, who are stuck in the earth underneath uh, uh, the excavations for the tube station, and so King is kind of like paying homage not just to Lovecraft in general, but also uh, those Nigel Neal specials, which he has talked about multiple times. Yeah, and that, that explicitly gets called out in the story. Mm -hmm. You know, underground horror or whatever. Uh, we should probably do Quartermass in the Pit for a bonus out at some point. We probably should. I don't know which one, though, because there's two versions. 
Uh, there is a uh, Kino Lorber Blu-ray that I have purchased. Oh. That I believe has the definitive cut. Okay, cool. Like the, I think there's a shortcut and a long cut. Well, I meant, um, I think there's actually like literally two filmings. Like I know there's one that was like a, maybe a TV serial or like a, a TV miniseries, quote unquote, or something maybe in the 50s because it's black and white. And then I think there's a Hammer remake that's in color from yes. the 60s. Yeah, 1967. I think that is the one that is generally understood to be like the the one when people are talking about it. That's the one they're talking about. Okay. As far as I know, because it's Roy Ward Baker mm-hmm. who did it, um, kind of known for that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, speaking of Hobbs, people should check out Hobbs Barrow. Oh yeah, an adventure game I enjoyed a lot. Yeah, I heard you tried to play that one time. Uh yeah, I should circle back with Danny and see what we can do about that. We were we were going to do a. a playthrough of it and then <laughs> we had technical issues uh it's very funny the house on maple street <clears throat> a group of children with a mean wicked stepfather discover their house is inexplicably turning into a spaceship so they trap him inside and blast him into space is this good uh i think it's pretty good i think it could be like 50 to 25 percent shorter but i love the idea of these kids like blasting their uh evil stepfather into space these kids' names are literally Bradbury. Yes, it's it, you can't get more. I mean, it's a this is obviously like super obviously a pastiche of Bradbury, mm-hmm. and it's a good one. Mm-hmm. Like it's written in voice. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's so so well accomplished, and like this weirdness that's happening of like they're like, hey, did you know? Did you see underneath the wood paneling? Our house is metal now. Yeah, <laughs> and they're like, yeah, that is weird. Uh, it's I don't know if I don't. I didn't need to read the story again, but uh, I do. I I agree. I thought it was uh, it's pretty fun as a Bradbury esque story. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, uh, people will want to point this out if we don't point it out. It's based on an illustration um, from a book mm-hmm. uh, whose title and author escape me, but it's like a book of sort of surreal uh, illustrations, like showing very bizarre scenes with like one sentence captions. Um, and how the story came about was that. Uh, Tabitha uh, came up with the idea that uh, everyone in the family and by everyone, this ends up meaning like her, Steve, and I think Owen uh, write a story inspired by one of the pictures where it's like, what is what is going on here? And so the picture that Steve is working from is literally just of this house, like on a you know normal looking house on a normal looking street, like rocketing up into the sky with like fire emerging from the bottom. I gotta say this, yeah, and it's printed in my version too. Did you? Uh, yeah, I have read? I have the paperback, so I know I knew in the um uh the hardcover that they gave it in as a plate. Yep, I've got the original first part. I guess uh maybe second printing here or something like that. Uh, but I've got it, and yeah, there's just one illustration in the whole book, and it's this rocket ship house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I've got it here. Uh. The the other thing I we forgot to say it about My Pretty Pony, mm-hmm. uh, it was published originally in a limited edition by the Whitney Museum. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine going and being like, I'm buying I'm buying the newest Stephen King uh, hyper local press version from the Whitney? Yep. What the hell is this? In my uh, uh, Stephen King listserv days, this was a very popular item. There were often people who were searching for this particular book and trying to get their hands on it or, you know, like they had it and they were putting it up for sale. I wonder how much it is now. Let's see here. My Pretty Pony. Whitney Museum. For sale. See if we can find it. 
looking like oh it 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 has a Barbara Kruger design. Uh huh. That's weird. On Etsy, someone's selling it for two hundred bucks. Hmm. On some websites, it's up to four thousand dollars. Jeez. So really, kind of just determines. Oh, there's some signed editions. Oh, okay. Uh, so maybe that's part of it. Yeah. So anyway, what's well, fascinating to find out? We have the fifth quarter. Mm-hmm. This is like a straight up crime story. Uh, right out of you know, in the notes he says this could be a George Stark. Uh, it's terrible. Yeah, it's just about a guy killing dudes in order to like get pieces of a map to find some treasure that he learned about a guy from Shawshank. Yeah, it's not good. It's not a good story. It's like a piece of a story, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's too long for to be a piece. I uh, it's not good. Yeah, no, nope. skip it. I agree. Please, I, I beg agree. you. I agree. I don't have anything else to say. It's it's like because there's not much to it. It's just a description of a guy talking to other guys. Right. It is it is like the first chapter of what could be like a longer crime novel about this. But what we have nothing. Uh, nothing. The doctor's case <clears throat> for the first and only time in his career. Dr. Watson solves a case before his esteemed friend, Sherlock Holmes, who is dealing with a cat allergy while they investigate the locked room murder of a cruel shipping magnate in his family mansion. Spoilers, his family did it. They were all in on it. Uh, Is this any good? I don't think this is the best story, but I think this is a really fun story. Yeah, I think this is great. I would definitely, I've thought about doing a course that's on like detection. Mm Mm-hmm. And empiricism, mm-hmm. you know, like how how do you determine things in the world, mm-hmm. and like how do you make uh, predictable outcomes of experience? Uh, and so, and that's uh, by uh, it's inspired by some stuff that I've talked to friend of the show John Roberts. Mm-hmm. Uh, John teaches a class on conspiracies that kind of runs that way, and I've thought less about that and more about like, oh, maybe we could start with Sherlock Holmes, and then like look look at how text does you know uh, crime, and then look at how. Uh, film does crime and then like go into true crime podcasts and then look at that kind of stuff you know unsolved mysteries all that stuff um and just kind of look at 20th and 21st century changes in the rhetoric of that and i read the story and i was like oh this would be a really good piece to put in there is like you know you could read a couple home stories and you could read this which like blows the home story out of the water in terms of like its comprehensiveness mm-hmm. um because it becomes a character study of a bunch of different little dudes who live in the world of homes, essentially. Right. And it's very dedicated to, like, I mean, it's it's right there in the summary, right? Uh, the way that a Holmes story works is that Holmes solves the mystery, and then Watson is, like, this uh, point-of-view character that we have who can ask questions that then gives uh, Holmes a reason to explain, like, his reasoning and why he's doing things, right? Uh, Watson is right. there to be an observer and to have things explained to him. Uh, and Steve is, you know, this is, this was part of this and Crouch End were both part of collections. Actually, so was, mm-hmm. um, Home Delivery. There was a, a couple of these mm-hmm. stories came out of like, uh, collections that had a theme. So Home Delivery was like zombie stories. Uh, Crouch End was New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos. Uh, and then this was a, uh, 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 you know, Holmes, uh, sort of collection. Uh, so Stephen King gets his chance to write a Sherlock Holmes story. And his, uh, his first move is like, all right, I'm going to write the story where Watson figures it out before Sherlock does. And that happens because Sherlock has a cat allergy and he's like, you know, off step a little bit, uh, during this case. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
But yeah, it's good. It's and it's also a real Stephen King maneuver to take a Sherlock Holmes story and make it work due to a uh because often sorry, let me take one step back. Often Sherlock Holmes stories, as we've talked about, if you can go listen to the Game Study Study Buddies episode on As If, mm-hmm. which is a book of like about kind of the history of fandom and like these moments of of fan speculation and how they work and how they interact with um, the stories themselves. Um, but uh, you know, notably in the history, the, in the background of that, people like the idea of like reading a Holmes story and then solving it yourself mm-hmm. and having ideas about doing that. And what's what's so great about this story is it turns on essentially a cinematic image, mm-hmm. which is uh, someone the the locked room murder is only possible because someone made a perspectival painting that prevents you from seeing part of the room. Mm-hmm. And there's really no way to figure that out other than a character cinematically or the the narrative device, not even a character, but the 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 cinematic device of the story, the camera, Stephen King's camera revealing that to you via looking mm-hmm. but in text mm-hmm. uh it's entirely a visual story which is very funny yeah um uh anyway yeah and it's an it, it it just seems like king is having a lot of fun like that's one of the things i really like about this story yeah i had a lot of fun too i think it's a really fun story yeah omni's last case uh <laughs> god um there is a gumshoe in the 1930s. What are they in LA? Yes, they are in LA. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gumshoe in 1930s LA, whose life just seems to be going down the toilet because his genre isn't working correctly. Mm-hmm. Come to find out, his author is trying to mess up his story so bad so that he can write himself into the fiction and physically Narnia his own ass into 1930s LA and uh, uh, overwrite the fictional character. Mm -hmm. He does it. Mm -hmm. And then the fictional character learns how to become an author. Mm -hmm. Talking about planting a flag for later stuff. Uh I don't want to get too deep into it, but it's pretty wild. Uh, I think think the story's okay. It could stand to be half as long as it is. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we, we, like, revolve around the toilet. You know what I mean? We spin the toilet bowl around what's going wrong in his life for way too long. Yeah, yeah. It, but the maneuver is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I agree with you. Like, there, there's something about, like, pacing or, like, proportion here. Um, yeah. But, like, the the things that, like, the way that his, like, life goes wrong is, like, so well done. Because he's a series character. And it's narrated in the first person. So it's like he wakes up and he notices that the um the people downstairs who are normally like normally really loud, they're not talking. And then he goes out and he meets like the blind newsboy who has uh, shown up in all of his stories, who's been like his little sidekick. Uh, and like the, the newsboy is like leaving town and he's going to get an operation. That means he's not blind anymore. And also he like insults him and yells at him. And then he meets. Mm-hmm. It, and he's rich now. Yes. Right. So you like. uh uh it's there's something really uh, nicely done about the way that King is able to establish 
the sense of a series behind this character as he like remembers. Mm. He was like, oh, with this business and that business and you help me out with this, like all these other cases. Uh, he can really establish this sense of like a long, like the way that you can grow attached to uh, like the supporting characters in a, in a series like this. Uh, and then how that gets weird when, you know, they, they start retiring or leaving the story or they become hostile to the type of story that they're in. There's something really nicely done about that. But then, yeah, it's like the story is like half that and then half like this, like weird philosophical discussion he has with his author. Yeah, and then and you know we get this like you know Stephen King realism, right? Mm. Where like the author, his son has died of complications from AIDS, uh-huh. and then his wife, uh, she kills herself due to that, mm-hmm. and then so like and he's got shingles, yeah, right, which is just like insult to injury here, and so like everything is so bad for him. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some Narnia here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get in there. And so then he makes this flip and then it's like the horror of this character because basically like that guy becomes the, you know, the fictional character and then this fictional character, the gumshoe becomes the writer and he's like in his body and he's like living and he finds like I think it takes place in 1992 or 1994 or something. Uh, it, it actually yeah, it takes place in 94 or 95. So like relative to the publication date, it's actually a little bit of a science fiction story. Yeah, right. I feel like what could what could happen? More microwave. Yeah. Uh, but basically, it's like this is a living hell compared to 1930s Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. It, it like he has been consigned to hell, and so he's going to learn how to become an author to like flip it back out, you know, and get back in yeah. his position. Uh, which a fun little revenge story there at the end, or like this idea of revenge. But what what's so interesting to me about this is so many of these stories in this collection. And I'm putting this here because. We're about to talk about two things that have nothing to do with any of this stuff. What's so fascinating about this collection is is it, that it is clear to me that kind of in the back half of the 80s and through the early 90s, Stephen King is thinking about the shape of stories mm-hmm. in a way that feels very intentional and very metatextual. You know, maybe he's just catching up to like postmodern literature or whatever, you know, that's going to keep accelerating through the 90s. Mm-hmm. But there's something really interesting to me. Like, I just don't think that Stephen King of the early 80s is thinking about this, right? Like, he's not thinking about the metatextual elements of story and how those go down. But if you put this up against something like Dolores Claiborne, right? Like, they're both stories about the relationship that a person has with fiction or even misery going back a little bit further, right? That, I don't know, there's there's something really interesting about the way that King is trying to work through his thoughts about the author-art relation and that's going to keep going. That's going to go all the way through the Dark Tower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, head down. This is a nonfiction piece about uh, King's son Owen's Little League team's performance uh, during the 1989 season, uh, during which they become the main state champions but fall out of the running at the regional level. Uh, is this any good? <sighs> I think so, but also I have no particular connection to baseball or knowledge of it. And so like a lot of this essay, like it's pretty long um, and a lot of it is stuff that I don't have a lot of emotional investment in just because I I not really following like the the plot of the thing, as it were. Uh, But what is interesting about the story is seeing Stephen King take his bag of writerly tricks and deploy them in a Mm -hmm. creative nonfiction piece. So like the ways that he can like 
uh, establish uh, character traits for real people, right? This kid is like this, uh, and that recurs, right? This kid is the class clown, and so he is constantly sort of the one who's showing up making jokes or being kind of a handful or whatever. Um, and these, like, really, like, uh, uh, realistic moments where... Uh, like the the coach is kind of like talking to the kids and like how do the coaches talk to the kids what are the nicknames that the kids come up with for the coaches and this sort of thing um it, it it's like the the way that we've we've talked about this on the show in the past that like king is so good at uh uh condensing character down to a few like observed details and so it's really interesting mm-hmm. seeing that happen in a, in a slightly different context but overall like i could read i could not read this essay ever again and i would probably be happy about that <laughs> Yeah, I really don't like it. Um, And I really don't like it because of that bag of tricks. Mm -hmm. Because the thing that you're not saying, but which is implicit in what you're saying, is that uh, Stephen King's uh, perspectival trick that he always likes to pull, right, uh, particularly around nostalgia, Mm -hmm. is all in here, right? So the reason he covers this stuff is that Owen is part of the team. Right. So he's already attached to it, and he starts doing that. And I forget where this landed. Um, what, what magazine is this? Oh, this is from the New Yorker. This was a big deal, right? right, When it happened. So it's like a a straight New Yorker piece. Um, and it feels that way because this is pure magic circle nonsense, (laughs) right? Like it, it is, uh, within the world of the sport, you know, obviously there's a sociological function. Everyone comes together. They watch, there are all these like social behaviors that form around it. You know, the more people win, the more people give money to the team, all this kind of stuff, right? They're going to go somewhere. They're going to do something big and important. So there's all this kind of sociological, but within that, there's this social transformation that happens to these kids, right? There's this long segment where King is talking about the coach, because a lot of this is about the coach, Mm -hmm. you know, and how good he is working with these kids. Um, And, and like, there's very funny stuff. Like earlier on, they talk about the first playoff game or whatever, where, uh, each kid gives another member of the other team a pennant. Mm-hmm. So everyone goes home with a souvenir mm-hmm. from like the accomplishment. So there's all this kind of like social management going on. Um, and, but the long section is about love. You know, the, the coach tells, Hey, says in order to be a successful team, you have to love one another. And the kids all laugh at that. Cause they're all like middle schoolers. And then eventually he keeps saying it enough to where they take it seriously. There's this kind of like internal social transformation. Mm-hmm. What? And that to me is just like, summer day 1950s shit right mm-hmm. like there's a lot of of stand by me in right. here in the assumptive ideas that are going and that that's purely biographical to me i think there's a lot of stephen king biography in here uh probably the first place that i saw and witnessed and truly understood social inequality in a way that i had not before i was probably five or six years old uh playing baseball like straight up playing baseball because that's all there is to do where i'm from is to play sports uh, and just you immediately see like I, I it was palpable to me the the way that 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 all of that inside of the thing is absolutely a fiction uh, compared to the different ways that people enter into that. Right. The social relationships that they enter into with those coaches, the class versions, the, the you know, the class realities of entering into that. Um, some of us had the, uh, you know, the uh, given to you by the local rec league helmet. Some people did not have that helmet. Some people had very good, probably much safer helmets Mm -hmm. that had not been, you know, uh, distributed uh, uh, in 1980 or whatever originally. Um, And so there to me, this is like it's so such New Yorker shit. Right. Which is like 
here's the universal experience of the quintessential American thing and watch how community happens. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, and in order to write those kinds of stories, we've talked about this every time it's come up in the Stephen King version of this. In order to get there, you have to elide a lot of social reality, Mm -hmm. which is fine in fiction. Uh, In fiction, you can talk about it. Uh, In fiction, you can address like the aporias or problems or gaps that are, are made there. Here, uh, to me, it's so much more insidious because it is a statement about the powers of baseball and the powers of games that has to eliminate reality in order to get to a good story. And so watching those tricks come out, I think, are very frustrating. And also, right, being a game studies person, Mm, you know, mm -hmm. in in a slightly different life from this show really makes me attuned to this. I mean, this would be a wonderful thing to teach alongside, say, Beyond a Boundary. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in terms of like, all right, what's what's in this one book that tells us about sport and what's in this other thing that tells us about sport and how are they different? Um, But uh, but yeah, it's just... Uh, I found it very frustrating to read in a way that I did not find frustrating when I read it the first time when I was 13 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, fair enough. <laughs> uh, Brooklyn August. This is a poem about baseball. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it's fine. Yep. I have no opinions on a poem about baseball. I think this is probably uh, of the poems that have shown up in Stephen King uh, short story collections thus far. I think this is probably the best one uh there's some interesting like as a poet king is very influenced by like the modernists uh and it's always interesting to see that come out here uh and this is a place where that comes out pretty strongly right there's like a this is a poem about baseball that has a an echo of proof rock in it (laughs) right in Abbotsfield, they come and go yeah (laughs) right uh yeah i think it's fine but again uh absolutely hammered with nostalgia Mm -hmm. which uh look it's not baseball if you don't have nostalgia uh then the final story like uh, the the olden days of uh cassettes and cds and records and whatever uh after the little closing set of notes that king provides there is another extra story that's not listed in the table of contents it is called the beggar and the diamond uh, and it is a rewriting of a Hindu parable that keeps the setting but swaps in the Christian God and the Archangel Uriel for some reason. Uh, and the Archangel feels sad for a certain beggar whom God gives a giant diamond that the beggar does not see because he is too busy being grateful for his sight in the beautiful world around him despite his low station in the world. And we all learn a very important lesson. Uh, is this good? N- not particularly. No, I... I... Why is this here? Yeah, I don't understand it. Why did Stephen King do this? It's this is like the 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 collection of baffling decisions really overall. Like that's my takeaway is that there are so many stories here or moves that are made in the stories here where I'm just like, I I don't know how you get to that point. Like, obviously you can. I don't know what the map looks like. No, not even a little bit. Weird thing to do. I would personally have cut it like I would about 50 percent of the stories here. (laughs) Uh, speaking of cutting out 50% or even more of things, we're not doing segments because we never do segments with the, uh, the short stories. Um, although I tried to point out like connections between things when they came up. Um, do you have any other thoughts to say about this big picture? Before I don't think I, I don't think I do. Uh, I just sad to go back to this book, which I had such fond memories of. Oh, you know what? I did have a thought while I was reading this. This is maybe, uh, interesting to you specifically. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, you ready? Okay. 
I think I've come around on the pilings. Okay. Well, From misery. Okay, why? I don't know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't have like a, I don't have a rationale for you. Okay. I just I was thinking about it while I was reading this book. I know one of the stories in here, and I thought maybe that was okay. <laughs> maybe that wasn't as bad as I thought it was. <laughs> awesome. That's all I have to say about Love it. Love to yeah. hear it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Look, if the, if the show isn't honest, what is it? You know? Right. I mean, I got to be honest. I think I've come around on the pilings. All right. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Uh, if you're a new listener, jump back into our episode on Misery to hear us talk about the pilings. Oh, you know what? I think it might have come up in Home Delivery. Oh. I think the I think the pilings were described. Oh yes, I think so. And then I thought about the pilings. <laughs> and then I thought maybe I was too harsh on the pilings. <laughs> and and too harsh on Michael and his love of the pilings. Oh goodness. Yeah. I think that's how it came out. All right. Uh yeah, so uh next month well, okay, actually, first of all, you should know that there are bonus episodes that come along with this show, and you can get those bonus episodes if you go to patreon.com slash rangetouch. Uh, we have a bonus ode for, like, every episode thus far, uh, save the first one. Uh, and this month we will be discussing a film that I haven't seen, I think, in its entirety from start to finish, although I have seen, like, huge chunks of it in, like, weird scattered, you know, TV airing order. Uh, the Night Flyer. Um, I am very excited to figure out whether or not the peeing, <laughs> the peeing vampire device is recycled verbatim or if they add some new visual flair to it. I'm not going to tell you. All right. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. We will uh, discuss that this month at this at the time that you're listening to this. You will be able to hop on over to that other feed and, and listen to that bonus episode. Uh, it's got Miguel Ferrer in it. Yeah, I'm exciting times uh and that's a great way of supporting us right uh you give us a, a little bit of money every month and we can continue like reading these things uh reading these 900 page short story collections and uh doing whatever research we can and, and talking about it uh that's a wonderful way to support us the other thing that you can do is uh go to your podcast platform of choice and re uh, leave a review a five-star review uh, that really does move the number. It it, it move the needle. It lets uh, people like it lets the algorithm know that uh, people like listening to us, and so therefore the algorithm is maybe more inclined to show us to other people. And if you leave a five star review that is also funny, there's a chance that Cameron will read it on air. Can you do that, Cameron? I can. I'm pulling it up right. this very moment. We're riding right at four point nine. Mm -hmm. Y'all gotta give us them five stars so we can get over that four point nine. Let's see here. Uh. This is from Hungry Ghosty. Just King Things. Unsure why, but glad they are. <laughs> All right. <laughs> if you, too, want to be unsure why, but glad they are, leave us a review. Uh, let people know about us. And um, you can also look at our T-shirt store that we have <laughs> that I am remembering. It is tpublic.com slash stores slash range touch. There's probably a link to it in the episode description. Uh, we've got a couple of King shirts up there that you can check out and we actually just, I'm only, it's in my mind because we just put up a new shirt for the, the Homestuck show that ended. Uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, check those out. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, anything you want to add to that, Cameron? Nope. All right. Well then rejoin us next month when we will be seeing the king really start to lock together as we read, uh, 1994's doorstopper of a novel, Insomnia. <sighs> 
I hope you started reading this six months ago. Uh, no, unfortunately, because I was stuck in the mud of nightmares and dreamscapes. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's, God, it's a long one. Well, weirdly enough, in terms of sheer page count, shorter than nightmares and dreamscapes. Oh, that makes me feel better. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, God, it's a weird book. <laughs> Gee, I. It's such an odd book. Mm-hmm. I'm. I'm hype on it. Yeah. Yeah. If you've ne- if you just listen to the show and don't read any of the books, maybe give Insomnia a shot. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be an interesting experience. <laughs> it's maybe the worst book to start reading Stephen King with, but uh, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Yeah. All right. Well, until next time, Cameron, uh, we have all sorts of motivations, all sorts of things that keep us going. But uh, what is one in particular that's uh, relevant for this project? Uh, we do it for Steve. <laughs> <laughs>